Hi, my name's Shelley Flett. Welcome to the Dynamic Leader Podcast, where I share insights, experiences, successes, and failures with leaders from across a broad range of industries and business structures. I maintain that each of us needs to be open to sharing our experiences and making the leadership playground safe enough to fail, to grow, to have fun, and ultimately become more dynamic. So please sit back and enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another Dynamic Leader Conversation. Uh, Today's topic is on culture. You know, that thing we talk about that, you know, many of us don't fully understand. And I thought in uh, ahead of this conversation that I should probably look up the definition of culture myself. And I found that actually there's quite a few definitions. Uh, And I must admit that my favorite one um, is the act or process of cultivating living materials, such as bacteria or viruses, in prepared nutrient media. And so immediately I was thinking cheese, uh, and I love cheese, uh, and that could be a really great metaphor for for culture on all levels. Uh, But I think that the uh, most apt definition for today's conversation is actually the characteristic features of everyday existence shared by people in a place or time. So I thought that was kind of nice. Uh, But joining me for the conversation is author Shane Michael Hatton, who is an expert in leader communication, a speaker, a coach, a trainer, and has partnered with organizations across the NFP, public and private sectors. He is a Gallup certified strengths coach, a member of the Forbes Global Coaches Council, founder of the People Leaders Network, and the author of Let's Talk Culture. So excited about this book. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. I love being here. I, you, when you were telling that story about the cheese, it reminds me of an episode of The Office where I think it might be The Office where he's talking about uh, the definition of wedding. And uh, he basically says the fusing together of two metals. And he'd looked up welding as the definition. And I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. I, I'm always thinking about culture when I'm enjoying some um, cheese with my wine. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> perfect pairing. Um, so I guess, you know, the, my, my first question is, I hope quite obvious, but how do you define culture and specifically organizational culture, if that's different? Yeah, it's such a huge one. So in the, in the preparation for the book, one of the things we did is we actually did a huge research project where we asked a thousand, well, a thousand and two, very specifically Australian managers, a whole lot of questions around their experiences and belief with culture. And one of the questions we asked was, can you define organizational and team culture? And 97% said yes which I thought was huge, like a huge overwhelming percent. So yeah, of course I can. And naturally the next question we asked them, we gave them a short answer and said, tell us what your definition of organizational culture is. And I was so, um, you know, interested and intrigued by some of the answers. So people said all kinds of things. So they said, you know, our organization's empowering, our organization is, you know, uh, you know, some people just wrote the word good, which I thought was the, probably the most interesting response of all of them. Um, <laughs> But what we found is one in 10 people gave this definition of culture. And it was something to the effect of culture is the the practices and behaviors that guide and inform the decisions of all team members or something to that effect. And there were variations of it within the, within the study. And, and one of the things I did is when I looked through the raw data that McCrindle had sent me, I said, there's this recurring definition that keeps coming up and it feels very um, very specific and very well constructed. And I thought to myself, if I didn't know the definition of culture, but I said that I did, what would I do? And so I opened a new tab in Google. I went define organizational and team culture. And the one in 10 people that had a consistent definition had just copied and pasted the first definition that shows up. 
And what Thanks, it taught Google. me was a couple of things. <laughs> Thank you, Google. It taught me two things. Number one, most people find it really hard to define culture. And most people, when we ask to define it, describe culture. So they say things like our culture is empowering, autonomous, trusting. They describe the outcomes of culture. Or the second part of it is that we all feel like we should know, like because we talk about it all the time, right? So typically the first question everyone always asks me is how do you define culture? And it's the best way to start an argument amongst people who think about culture. My, my um, best description and descriptive culture is culture is the norms. It's the norms on our team and in our organization. And it's probably the most simplistic definition of it. Yeah. Um, but I actually think culture is all of the things most of the time when people talk about it. Is it the um, the way we do things around here? Yes. Is it the behaviors? Yes. Is it the values? Yes. It's all of those things, but it, it is, it feels very um, hard to define because it's so complex mm. and, and so huge. And in that respect, probably quite similar to the making of cheese. You know, there's so many, there's so many complexities to it. And if the environment isn't conducive, then it's not going to turn out the way that you you want to. And I mean, anyone who's ever had a crappy cheese knows that, you know, it seems quite simplistic on the out, on the outside, but when it's like, well, now go make it, go create that. That's a very different concept. And it, it yeah, it's really interesting with um, the answer to that, that question that you ask. Yeah. I mean, have you ever been wine tasting before? Like, uh, in, and what's your... <laughs> It's one of my favorite pastimes. <laughs> exactly. I feel like if you're a cheese person, you can't not pair it with a good wine. Correct. I mean, most of the time, most of our life, like if you were to ask me to describe wine, I would say it's either a good wine or a bad wine. And and it's an apt description, right? Like you might go, is it good? What makes it good or what makes it bad? I know it tastes good or it tastes bad. And if you think of most people's concept of culture, it's kind of the same. It's like, is culture toxic or is culture healthy? Well, how do you know? Well, I don't know. It just feels good or it doesn't feel good. I go home at the end of the day going, I loved that or I hated that. But if you were to ask someone who's like a wine connoisseur and you gave them a taste of say a red or a Shiraz, they would go, oh, there's hints of like this grape or this note or, you know, this kind of bouquet or floral notes of this. And you'd go like, really? And you taste it. And then you could start to pick up on some of those. But if you went even deeper, you could, you have people who go like, this tastes like currants or, you know, strawberries, or this has this kind of a soil flavor. I'm like, what do you mean it has a soil flavor? And the answer is yes to all of those things. It's good. And it also has hints of, you know, blackberry or currants. Mm. And so it, it, culture is a bit like that. You can look at it at a big collective level and say culture feels good or it doesn't feel good. And it's also deeply intricate in terms of like you peel back the layers and there's always more that you can find and discover. And it's so interesting because you don't even know to consider that. It's it's like it's an unknown it's, it's an unknown thing for so many people until someone asks a question like that. Mm. And then you, and it's not that you're ignorant to it or that you were just ignore, like oblivious. It, it was, yeah. you didn't know that that could be a factor and, you know, awareness when it comes to culture is, is a huge element. Massive. I mean, one of the stories that I opened with in the book, and it was quite a popular story in the late 90s, was from David Foster Wallace. And it's a story of two goldfish swimming along and they're having a conversation and an older goldfish swims in the other, in the other direction and says, uh, morning, boys, how's the water? And they say, good morning. And they swim on for a little bit. And then they kind of pause and look at each other and go like, what the hell is water? And I, I feel like in many ways, like we're like goldfish in water. And we're trying to make sense of this thing that we're just constantly immersed in when it comes to culture, like we're always immersed in culture. Mm. But when you say like, well, what is it? It's like, well, well, I don't really know what the hell's culture. It's just, I'm just immersed in it. It is what it is. Mm. 
Yeah, it's so true. So in, in your book, you talk about um, different um, showing up at work and, and how different having to work at work. Can you share a little bit around that? I, I kind of like the concept, but can you share a little yeah. bit around that? Yeah, I mean, part of this is when you think about culture, like one of the most popular definitions of culture is culture is the way that we do things around here. And it's it's the one that you hear. It's it, The reason why it's probably the most popular is it's the easiest for people to remember. But if you think about the key emphasis on that definition is the way that we do things around here. And if you think about most of your career, especially before you're stepping into leadership, you never really have to consider the we. You really don't have to consider the I or the me. Which is, you know, when I show up into a workplace, well, how do I work here? How do I do things? Or how do I want things to run? And you don't realize until you get to work and people do things differently to you that you go, oh my gosh, how does this, how does this now work? I mean, I'll give you an example. Like you think about, um, you know, what's the way that you've always done conflict at work? Um, you know, maybe in previous, a previous boss, it's always just been to like avoid it or, you know, just not really address it or just... Maybe you let a manager step in and they deal with conflict and you've never had to deal with it. Now, is it right or wrong? I mean, well, who, who knows? It's neither right nor wrong. It's just the way that was always done. Now, you might go to another team and you join and all of a sudden conflict comes up and you go to avoid it and a person just comes and runs at it head on. And you're like, whoa, what's going on here? It's like, well, that's not the way I've always done things. And you, all of a sudden you start to realize that differences uh, show up at work. And we're like, well, it's not right or wrong. It's just different. And mm. now we have to try and find some collective way of deciding, well, how do we want to do things together? And I reckon that's where culture plays a really important part. Mm, absolutely. Um, and you say, you know, one of the one of your favorite questions that you ask when you're working with teams is if you were to delegate a big and complex project to work on, what would be the first thing you do to get started? And I'm curious about what the first thing you would do to get started on that is. I know it. I, the reason why I love that question is that is it brings out things that most of the things that we think are perfectly normal to us. We don't realize are not that normal until we get around other people. And when you ask this question, especially in a collective context, it's fascinating to see how people respond. So I've had some people, they go, well, the first thing that I do is I want to get away from everybody. And I just want to get the, I want to get the, my head across all the details of it. I want to feel clear in my head and then I'll bring people together. Other people say, well, I just want to get everyone into the room and I want to have a really honest conversation. I want to bounce our ideas around. Other people say, I just want to ask lots of questions. Other people say, I want to know the clear, like what's the problem that we're solving? And it's so different. For me personally, I'm an ideation person and I'm also a learner. And so I love asking questions and then asking, well, how do we, how do we shift the way that it's always been done or what can we do to do things differently? And so that's my natural go-to. It's not right or wrong. It's just different. Like we all have different ways of doing things. And so how does that tie into that's again, being able to do different to make to, to work and make it work yeah. is how do people then deal with that? Cause you know, and I am a bit with you. I'm a bit of a, an ideation externally kind of reference person. So I love to, you know, whiteboard things uh, and I completely appreciate others needs to, you know, lock themselves in a cupboard and, and do it that way. <laughs> How do you use culture or even impact culture for the better yeah. with different ways of working? Because you can't, you can't do both at the same time. So do you do both differently? And is there compromise? Yeah. Like how do you navigate that? 
Yeah, I think there definitely has to be some element of compromise in this, right? So Gallup have this really interesting phrase. They call it the reverse golden rule. And the golden rule is treat others how you want to be treated. And we kind of, that that kind of uh, mantra has transcended cultures and religions all over the world. It's there, it's like the philosophical rule for life is treat others how, how, how you would want to be treated. But the truth is the reverse golden rule is treat others how they want to be treated or lead others how they like to be led. And so part of it is number one, creating a self-awareness that I do different things to other people or I do things differently to other people. And when I'm aware of that, then I recognize that maybe the way that I like to lead isn't the way another person likes to be led. And so what I can do is start to open up a conversation, which I think is probably the most crucial part of every all of this is how do I open up a conversation to go, how do you like to do things? How, what's your natural style or approach or how would you typically approach this? And what you'll find is that as you open that conversation, we probably want the same thing, Mm. but we go about achieving that in different ways. And if we can find the thing that aligns us, then that's great. We can create the culture. We can feel aligned. We can feel like we're working, working towards something together, but we can still appreciate the differences. Or what I would say is be aligned at at the core and inclusive at the edge where we can go, yes, we're aligned in the things that are really important and the things that matter, but we're open to the perspectives and the differences that every person contributes to our team. And so then culture is about aligning where you can, but also respecting the differences. It's so important. I mean, the differences, I mean, I have this phrase, which is familiarity makes us comfortable, but difference makes us better. Mm. And it came out of this idea. There was a Harvard study a number of years ago where they looked at sorority and fraternities and they were solving murder mystery kind of, you know, exercises. And halfway through, they introduced what they called an outsider. And the outsider was a person who was not part of their sorority or fraternity. And they basically gave them the chance to kind of interject and give their perspective. And they interviewed them at the end and said, you know, how did you feel like it went? And everybody said when the outsider was introduced, it got harder. There was more friction. It became more challenging. Mm. And yet the results were better. Mm. They, they got to the right answer quicker. And so it's this idea that, yeah, you know, familiarity, like when we're around people that are like us, we feel more comfortable, but when we get people who are different to us, it actually makes us better. So if our job in culture is to remove difference, we've missed the point. Our job in culture is to feel aligned, like we still know what's expected of each other. And at the same time, allow the people with different perspectives to go, actually, could we do this better? Could we do this differently and allow ourselves to be able to change with that? Okay. So I've got a question for you on that. So <laughs> Gallup strengths, yes. or any kind of strengths work, is all about play to your strengths and that we know that our strengths are motivators, they're energizers, that we, when we don't play to our strengths, that consumes a, a lot of energy. So how does how do you work with strengths as well as appreciating working around differences which I would imagine working around differences unless you've got a top strength around challenge or whatever that is that that would be almost in conflict with each other yeah yep it's a a really good question one of the one of the big challenges people often find with strengths is that we go well I understand that I can leverage my strengths but what about the things that Uh, potential weaknesses for me or the things that are in conflict for me or the way that we do things. And um, one of the things I'll often say to people is strengths. I mean, as a tool, like a lot, like a lot of these things, they don't tell you what you can and can't do. They typically show you how you do what you do. 
And I think when you become aware of that, it's not feeling like it's as restrictive and it's like, well, this is the only way it can happen. It's just recognizing that the way I achieve something looks different to somebody else. And I'll give you a picture of what that might look like. There's someone who I know who was trying to, you know, get to the gym more frequently. And they just said, well, I don't have any discipline in my strengths. And so I can't be a disciplined person. And it feels a bit like a cop out to me uh, when you think about that. And I was like, okay, so rather than looking at what you lack, what if we looked at what you had, which is the whole orientation of positive psychology and strengths-based development, which is what do you have? Well, they said, well, I'm really big on my relationship building and, you know, building really close relationships and also in responsibility, which is that sense of commitment to not wanting to let other people down. It's, you know, saying yes and meaning it rather than saying yes and then changing their mind. So there was this balance of relationship building and responsibility. And so rather than trying to lean on the weakness that was there or the lack of strength, which is discipline, we said, what if we leaned into your relationship building and responsibility and you found someone with discipline and they show up to the gym every day and you say, I don't want to let them down. And I also want to build a really good relationship. So rather than looking at what I don't have, I leverage what I do have. And I think it's the same with the team rather than going, well, we don't have this in our team. So we can't achieve that. I'm like, what a horrible excuse. Let's look at what you do have. And if we leverage that, how do we go about doing it? Maybe we just do it in a different way to how other people do things. Mm, I love that because I think, you know, if you knew that your, if you knew that what you needed to do didn't align with your top strengths, there could be a temptation to give up or sit back and go, I can't do this because there's so much and you know there is so much that's going on in the workplace at the moment there's this enormous amount of pressure leaders are are really um, struggling with that how to work more effectively and move away from burnout so Mm. you know this being able to embrace differences all of the time with this concept of burnout looming and not seeing alignment with strengths, it's really helpful how you have identified how they can reframe and not necessarily need to work within their weaknesses, but look for opportunities to work within their strengths, which is going to give them back more energy, or at least it's going to Mm. um, stop them or prevent them from excessively utilizing energy unnecessarily. So I I love the reframe that you give around that. I think that's really I think that's really powerful for any leader that's listening and thinking, it's just so exhausting having to work with the different, you know, I acknowledge we need the differences. I acknowledge that's really important, but I'm just so exhausted by that. Mm. And you, you do so you do this so well is, is recognizing what could potentially be an unhelpful frame for the conversation that we're having and what, how do I make that more helpful and beneficial Mm. and just recognizing how reshaping and reframing some of your language can actually shift that. And the second thing that I would add to it is just purely it opens up a conversation, which is, okay, I do it this way. You do it that way. We both want the same thing. Can we agree on what we both want, which is either we want to achieve the goal. We want to retain that person. We want to address that conflict. We want the same thing, but appreciating that we probably go about it in two very different ways. And that's okay. That's Mm -hmm. perfectly normal part of teaming. And I think the other thing is not to create a dependency. So, you know, if you use the example of you've got one person that likes to go sit in a cupboard and, you know, just do things on their own. And the other person that likes to whiteboard and brainstorm and spitball ideas with people is that you don't create a dependency on the two of them to get to the solution 
together. So, mm. you know, it could be, well, let the person who knows needs to go sit in the cupboard, go sit in the cupboard. And if you need to be external and talk things through, like I, I've worked out that and behind me is a whiteboard wall. So I've worked out that um, actually my ideation process doesn't actually require anyone else to be in the room, that I can actually have this conversation with myself and I can spitball ideas. And, and then sometimes I'll call someone or I'll, you know, Zoom with a with someone who's a J in an adjacent field and I'll and I know who also likes the same approach that I do and I'll bring them in just to get some different perspectives and then I can take what I've got back to the person in the cupboard and and then bring that together and that seems to work mm. And that's helpful if you if you know that and if you talk about that. So one of my favorite quotes that I used in the book was from Tori Aledo and it was, what isn't communicated is felt, what's felt is interpreted and what's interpreted is often misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's one of my favorite quotes because most of the issues that we have, are, and I, I say this to pretty much every context, is most of our biggest issues are a result of communication and can be solved through communication. Like if you look at any big conflict, any big challenge, you go go to the root of it, it's probably a communication issue and it can just be solved with an effective conversation. So Mm. when you go, well, you're doing this differently, you're doing that wrong, or you're doing this this way, it's like, well, have you ever made it explicit the way that you'd like to do it? Well, probably not. And so how would people know? Well, they just interpret. And when you interpret, there's a huge area of um, room for error. And you get this uh, whole lot of, well, I assume that because they've got <laughs> this, well, I assume that because Shane has is certified in Gallup strengths that he would know, you know. <laughs> yeah. The the assumptions, the the what we would say is the unspoken spokens, um, mm. is the things that become so deeply embedded as our way of doing things, but were the result of a complete unspoken situation. Mm. No one's ever said it, but we just do it. Why? Because that's, that's the way that we do things around here. Well, why do we do that? Has anyone ever explicitly said that? Oh, no, no, no. But I've, but we just know, you know, mm-hmm. it's so funny. Cause I was, I was having a coaching session um, earlier today and the um, one of the leaders that I was talking to, I, you know, I said, it's worthwhile having a conversation with this person. And so she said, you know, she sort of role-played out what, what she would say to this um, person. And she said, you know, I, I think I would suggest that we we catch up once a week. And I said, you know, can I offer some feedback around that, that maybe you don't say, I think we should catch up once a week, but that you ask, what, what do you need from me? Um, and she said, well, my hesitation with that is that they won't actually go down the path I need them to go down. And I said, what's that path? And she said, well, they're getting feedback. You know, I'm getting feedback from other people saying that this person is not following up and they're not following through on things. And I said, well, give her that information then. Mm. (laughs) And then ask, what do you need from me? Because without that, there's, as you said, there's this, there's um, spoken unspoken or unspoken spoke. What did you call it? The unspoken spoken. Yeah. Spoken um, that, you know, could lead her off on a completely different path. And so I'm always encouraging leaders to say, actually give them what they need to get them on the same page as you. And then you can work forward together, but stop assuming, you know, don't assume that you, that they won't know, but also don't assume that if they did know, they wouldn't know how to deal with it. I think this is yeah. that, and you're right about communication. It's why are we, why are we not treating adults like adults? Mm. You know, why don't yeah. we do that? 
I, th I think there's a part of us, we, we, we want to slip into, we, we, we know that the most effective way of working with team members, especially is to be a coach, right? And you see this in your work. This is the thing we all try to empower leaders to do more of. And what ends up happening, I'm not sure if you see it. I mean, curious to hear your thoughts on this. What I see is a, a lot of people who are in leadership positions being coaches, but through leading the witness, which is I'll coach you, but I already have the solution in mind that I, I need you to get to. And look, it's it's a part of the coaching process. It's okay to give advice from time to time, but leading a person down the path assumes that number one, your outcome that you want them to get to is the best outcome. And, and number two, it doesn't empower the person to be able to actually solve their own problem. It just kind of leads them and kind of spoon feeds them the answers that if you were going to give them the advice, it's quicker to just give them the advice than to coach them towards advice giving. And it assumes that what you just said, that person doesn't have the capability to solve the problems. And most of the cases they do, if they have all the information that's required to be able to make an informed decision. I don't know, what's your, do you see that? Do you see that kind of leading the witness coaching? Oh, I actually do it myself sometimes. Um, and I, I must <laughs> say, I, I don't mind it. It feels like, I, I but I think, um, I, I think it's okay to lead if you're not rigid on where you're leading them to. And I think if the yep. outcome is, is, what is the per for what purpose and it's that higher yeah. intention and that it's what both want and that some of the conversations just activate different ways of thinking yeah. um i i think that that leading the witness interrogation style and not not done well um is is not helpful um and i think yeah, yeah definitely giving advice there's there's so many different levels of of coaching um and i think that leaders trying to apply I always say you know if you can just ask the questions and I think leading the witness is probably the almost the best place for leaders to start if they've never done coaching or they've never started asking those questions and the, the more they do it the more you can then add to that and help them evolve to okay well now you've led them there how about you change how you're asking the question and then give them more autonomy. So do you see the mm. value in both? But I've also seen it misused to the point where it does impact culture. Yeah, especially to the point and probably the key part, which is what you touched on is that if the place that I'm leading to is so rigidly held that my mind can't be changed through the process, yeah. which is, I believe that I've got these solutions to everything that is the best solution. Um, you know, I was talking to someone the other day and they were saying that they're, you know, working through this team member who's coming to the organization. It's a really fast paced organization and they're finding that they're slowing things down and they were like, they really need to speed up. And then the other question was, well, actually, could they help us as an organization maybe slow down a little? And would it be more helpful for us to slow down? So rather than trying to coach or lead this person towards speeding up, this is the whole like inclusive at the edge bit is like, what if they could actually help make our culture better by bringing a perspective that shifts the way that we do things around mm. here, which I think is, again, coming back to that frame of how do I not be so rigid in what I'm holding to that I miss a potential opportunity when I see it. Gosh. And, you know, coming back to um, appreciating the differences, I think if you mm. would hold that and go, well, I've got some theories and I love to play with the, the concept of um, I have a hypothesis. 
Yeah. So, because what it does is that it it, it um, holds flexibility around that. So, you know, I have I have a bit of a hypothesis around this, uh, but I'm going to do some exploratory um, asking mm. of questions and see where that goes. And you know, so so often my hypothesis is just completely blown to pieces, <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, "Wow, okay, did not expect that come. You know, didn't see that coming. Didn't expect it." Um, and I actually get such joy out of that as a leader. Yeah. I, I love the expression test don't validate um, mm-hmm. because most of you think about the scientific methods that people take when it comes to hypothesizing, it's always around, I've got a hypothesis. My, my job is to test it, not to validate it. I'm not trying to prove myself right here. I'm just trying to figure out if it's right or wrong and whether it's right or wrong, I win. Yes. And when yeah. you approach most situations through the process of I'm just testing this, you can approach it lightly and through curiosity and you can learn from both whether it is a true hypothesis or whether it completely is false. And we did heaps of that in the process of our research for the book where I was like, here's my hypotheses of things that I think could be true. And they were just like wrong. And I was like, okay, that's amazing. Like that's really helpful to know. <laughs> I, and I love how much um, data you have in your book. I love the, I love the stats that you've weaved in and it's a beautiful combination of here's some data and here's a story to go with it to really bring that alive. How important is that for leaders to do in support of a really good cohesive culture? Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really important because there are, you know, we talk about the old science of left and right brain and, and there's an element of, of truth to that, but there's also a whole lot that's been debunked and the recognition that we can actually do both. We can do both analytical and abstract at the same time. Um, however, I think when it comes to communication, we still have preferences mm-hmm. and you go to any room and you go, how many people here prefer to learn through storytelling and through examples? Are there, how many people prefer to learn through the data and the numbers? And there's always a split in the room. And so when it comes to, especially communication is if we don't have, if we have one without the other, we're kind of going in half cocked almost that sense of like we're missing potential people that we can gain and we know that the research and the data and the evidence gives credibility to our ideas mm-hmm. and we know that the stories and the um the rituals and the communication the language and that it, it brings kind of connectivity and connection to it mm-hmm. and so i mean when we're talking culture we need to be aware of and inclusive of both Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. So if I was to pull one of the um, stats that I really like from your book, it was a a Gallup one, but you say that the right people don't stay in the wrong culture and the right Mm. culture will quickly weed out the wrong people. Um, And when you can keep the right people, uh, you mentioned the top 20, that Gallup stats give some pretty impressive results which you know includes 41 percent less absenteeism 70 percent fewer safety incidents 17 percent higher productivity and 21 percent higher profitability mm. what are we what are we missing to actually move towards this because I sort of mm. it's almost like is it then aligned to half of people leaders believe culture can't be influenced it just happens <laughs> that was that was a very confronting stat when that came through and I think what I realized is that when we started probing deeper into the conversations around can culture be influenced 
there are definitely some people out there, a lot of people, more than I'd like to be out there that would say culture can't be influenced, that it's just going to happen regardless of, you know, whatever happens. My, my general sense is most people believe culture can be influenced to be more intentional, but w- whether or not the question is, can culture be influenced to exist or not? The answer is no. Wherever you've got a collective group of people, culture exists. Yeah. And, and this is where the dilemma starts is most people, you can actually accidentally create a good culture. And it's purely just through luck of hiring and just having really good quality people and creating the culture that you want through that. And so that's why people go, oh, we've got a great culture, but we've never done anything about it. I'm like, well, I mean, that's pretty lucky. And the truth is you can create that. Um, But if you want to create an intentional culture, it takes a leader and it takes effort to be able to do that. And so the influencing PCA is a really big part. But when when you look at, so Gallup's research is the one you're referencing there. They say that um, the top 20% of candidates, these are the people who are going to show up, do great work, be highly engaged people. They're not asking questions that are transactional in nature. They're not asking about paycheck and perks and lunch breaks and holidays and all the kind of incidental stuff. They're asking questions about culture. What's my manager like to work for? What's the environment like to be a part of? And when you get those people, they are attracted to your business because they want to be part of that culture and they stay because they want to be a part of their culture. And I mean, our research said 86% of people said culture's most significant influences on employee engagement. Mm-hmm. And I was in a workshop last week and I asked people to define culture. And someone said, culture is how your people go home at the end of the day. And I was like, oh, I love that. Like, again, it's another facet of culture, which is like, you think about how you go home at the end of the day, do you go home feeling empowered, energized, or you just go home going, I don't want to go back to work tomorrow. And when culture is strong, because you've attracted those really great people to your organization and kept them in your organization, people are more engaged in their work. It's more of a a positive environment to be around. And so naturally you do better work and you are less likely to take time off because you're feeling overwhelmed and drained and all these other things that go along with it. Just, it's such a crucial element. And when we overlay that with the um, great resignation, or even if you think that's a myth, the the transient nature of our workplace. Yeah. Um, if there was ever a time to take culture seriously and the part that you play in it, it would be now. Yeah. So important. Yeah. I mean, I, I talked about it. Um, I, when I wrote the book middle of last year or towards the end of last year, um, I, it was right in the peak of all the great resignation debate. And everyone's like, is it going to touch Australia? Is it not? And I said, look, regardless, and I, I talked about the great reevaluation in the book. And I think um, Ariana Huffington came out and said something just in the last few weeks about it as well was the great reevaluation. The truth is when you get major disruption, people reevaluate hmm. all, all the time. They, they reevaluate their lives. They reevaluate what they're looking at. I was talking to someone in a major tech company just a couple of weeks ago. And he was saying when he first joined the organization, um, the salary was very, very poor. Like it, it, it was like, it was just not a great starting salary. And he said, I joined because of the culture of the organization. And he said, but now we're getting really young employees come through and they're being played off against these tech giants and they're getting stock options and they're getting huge salaries and they're getting all this stuff. And he said, they think it's important now, but in five, 10 years time, they'll realize that it was all meaningless if the culture that they're a part of sucks. And this is the danger is that we, 
are in a place where culture is becoming really important more than ever, but we're competing with people who are because of, you know, the transit nature of work, people are evaluating based on, well, how much are you going to pay me over here? What perks do I get over there? And if you're employing people right now and you've got someone sitting in front of you, that is all about the perks and they're not asking questions about culture. I'd be really careful about what the potential of that person is to be in your organization in the next three to five years. Well, yeah. And then there's that other part around, um, you know, people do ask a little bit about your organization and, um, you know, that connection between organizational culture and values. And I see them as being dependent on each other, Um, Mm -hmm. but how well a leader can not only articulate what the values are, but demonstrate that they actually live and breathe them. Because, you know, I see a lot of people, um, going into organizations and roles because of the values of an organization, because of the values that are, you know, displayed on the website and that are spoken mm-hmm. about. And then they get in there and they're really disheartened by, well, I did take a 20% pay cut to come here because I believed that I aligned, but this is BS because you're actually yeah. not even living it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we asked people in our research um, a series of questions and, and asked them to tell us how much they agree with it. And the four questions were essentially, our values are clearly communicated. The second one was, I can describe how they're lived out every day. Um, the third one is that they're more than words and that they have clearly defined behaviors. And then the, the last one, the fourth one was that my leaders demonstrate the values. And as you look through those four questions, how many people agree with it slowly decreases. So when we talk about are our values communicated clearly, you know, one in two managers would say, yep, yeah, our values are really clearly communicated about 39% say that they can actually describe how they live them out every day. And then 36% would say that they're more than just words that appear on a page or on a wall, but they actually have really clearly defined behaviors. And then 30% would say that their debt leaders actually demonstrate the values. And so when you're asking questions about values of an organization, it's actually not enough to just say, do you have values and are they clearly communicated? You actually want to be asking questions like, talk to me about how you see your values lived out every day in the organization. And if I was to join as a new person, how, what behaviors would I need to exhibit to demonstrate those behaviors? Mm -hmm. And then tell me about the leaders of the organization. Do you see them? What are the things that they do that help you know that they're living out the values? Because they're really crucial parts of it. Absolutely. And, you know, it's one of the, one of probably the most um, familiar topics of conversation that I'm having with people at the moment is, you know, leaders are saying, how do I handle this kind of behavior? And what do I do about this over here? And a lot of behavioral challenges that um, Mm. leaders are faced with. And I say, well, what are your values? And I come back to values all of the time. And, you know, so many times it's interesting that, you know, there's a 70% opportunity for people to, to live in, and breathe them based on the um, research that you've done, mm. but not even knowing what they are and needing to go on their their intranet and kind of giggling nervously and going, them. I should know this, shouldn't I? And I'm like, yeah, you actually should. Um, in So doing a lot of work with leaders and teams around either setting or resetting values based on what is it that you actually want to see and defining what the value is And then going one step further and saying, what are the behaviors that you would see when someone is living and breathing this value? And what are the behaviors that you would see if someone was not living and breathing? Being really, really prescriptive around, you know, um, when someone is um, having a conversation in a negative tone about someone without them being present, that is 
not living the value of integrity or it's not living the value of respect and, you know, being able to really attach that. And I think that's what is missing a lot of the time is what are the actual behaviors that we would expect and not expect with those? Yeah. And I think if you think about, so in the book, I talk about one of the conversations is an expectation conversation. The whole goal of an expectation Mm -hmm. conversation is for us to make really clear what we expect of each other. And the way we find alignment between all of those expectations is to take the abstraction higher. So when we talk about an expectation for, you know, the way we treat each other, we we use the word integrity because it aligns lots of different expectations Mm -hmm. and it's helpful at a starting point, but it can't stay there. So higher levels of abstraction make it easy to align, but it makes it really hard to put into practice. So Mm -hmm. then the clarification conversation for me is the next part, which is about how do we take an abstract idea and make it really concrete, which is behaviors. Behaviors help us to know what we're living them out. Mm. And the simple question for most people is to go, if you walked out into the office today and I said, point at your values, what would you point at? Like, what would, what would you show me? If you took me on a tour and said, I'm going to show you our values of our business, would you show me them written on a wall or would you actually show me a team meeting? Would you show me a conversation with a receptionist? Would you show me an elevator conversation? Would you show me the way that the leader delivers in the town hall? Like you've got to be out of point to these things. Otherwise no one knows how to live them out every day. Oh, I love it. And I love how you align that with uh, expectations and that again, they're not assumed. We are really um, open and prescriptive about what that is and that, mm. um, getting into the specifics, like taking it out of the abstract and getting into the specifics is not micromanagement and it's not disempowering because I think this is immediately where some leaders will go, I don't want to be that micromanager who really gets Mm. into the, it's like, it's it's actually quite different. It is when you set it from the outset and you can be quite prescriptive, then you can get out of their way and yeah. let them do their thing. And, you know, you don't necessarily even have to go back to that, that it's as long as you're living and breathing it and following and being true to yourself and, and how you're operating, then the work just does itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's Brene Brown's classic line, which is clear is kind, right? Mm-hmm. Like when we're clear about things, we're actually being kind to the people around us because we tell them what we expect of them. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the last thing I'd add to that, which is a really important part of this is, is, moving it just beyond expectations and beyond behaviors, but actually trying to find a way to embed it into our everyday conversation and language. Mm. Um, And I'll give you a really good example of this. So there was this, uh, I wrote about in the book, a guy named Nigel Richards, who was a Scrabble champion and he's the world's greatest Scrabble champion. Most people have only won one, maybe two tournaments. He's won like seven or eight back to back. He won the French open in Scrabble um, by playing an entire Scrabble tournament in French as an American And he did it because he spent nine weeks learning the French dictionary and basically competed again in a French tournament and was able to correct his opponents speaking in French. The funniest part about it is when he delivered his victory speech, he needed a translator because he couldn't speak French. Um, And it was this whole idea that you can know the words, but not speak the language. And so when it comes to values, culture, mantras, all these things, we can have words written on a wall but they don't fit into our everyday vocab. And that's what makes it really challenging. So I often say to people, I'll give you a really good example of this. I was, I was doing a workshop with a group of people a couple of weeks ago talking about their team culture. And one of the things is they said, we want to have each other's backs. And it was something, some kind of phrasing around connectedness. And I was like, great. So are you every day going to tell 
people, uh, we've got a culture of connectedness. It's like, probably not. Like, it's good to kind of summarize and it's helpful. And so I said, let's actually share some stories. And, and one incredible woman in the workshop shared this story about her grandmother who was European, who had immigrated to um, Australia. And she basically said, my grandmother was the first person I want to call with good news. And she said, because I knew every time I picked up the phone and I spoke to her, she was going to be so encouraging, so supportive, and she genuinely wanted the best for me. And she said, when I think about our culture, I think about my grandmother because I think my team are the first people that I want to call with good news. And I was like, oh my gosh, it just gave that, me that is a culture coming to life through story. Yeah. And so when we make the words a language, we embed it into our culture through storytelling and through like these rituals and these things like that. And I think that's a really crucial part of bringing culture to life. I love it. And there's no pressure to win a Scrabble tournament. <laughs> I, I can honestly say like that's, a, that's the most impressive thing to learn another language just purely by reading the dictionary. Well done. <laughs> that's awesome. So, um, yeah, I could, I could go on. Your, your book just has so much richness there's there's so many elements to it um, but I'd love to kind of finish the conversation by saying what do leaders need to do to keep the conversation around culture going yeah it's it's such an important one I often say to people like when you're trying to shift culture or make culture more intentional we often go okay well how long is it going to take me and the thing to remember is every time you're shifting someone to something, you're also shifting people from something. And so the first point is be aware that if you've spent 20 years building a culture, it's kind of unfair to expect that culture is going to shift in two months because you're dealing with so much organizational memory and residue, which bleeds over into the culture change process. Now that's not to say you can't change it quickly. There's some, some instances you can look at the pandemic. We changed culture very quickly, mm. but the world health organization has this really great thing where they basically say, you know, if you could just do 30 minutes of, you know, heart elevated heart rate every single day, you'll build fitness right over time. And when it comes to culture change or health or any of those big things, we often look for those big moments where we go, all right, we're going to change this. So maybe it's a two day exec retreat. Maybe it's an offsite with my team. It's all the things we go, okay, if we could just do that. Then our culture is going to transform. And I go, actually, it's the wrong question. Rather than asking, how do we you know, do these big things that change culture? It's always about how would I inject culture into every single conversation that we're having. When I see cultural inconsistency, how do I address it? When I see someone living out our culture, how do I celebrate it? When we're in a team meeting, how do we share stories that amplify our culture? When we're talking about our values, how do we link them to clear behaviors? When we're mm. you know, talking about our differences, how do we appreciate and respect them? It's just for me, how do you embed culture into every single conversation and decision that you make within the business? Sounds like the key is repetition and- Repetition. Consistency. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. I actually think that um, it's a really simple concept. I think leaders get bored with it. They get annoyed with it. They get frustrated mm. that, well, if I'm treating them like adults, they will just, you know, how many times do I have to repeat myself? And you know, my answer is as many as you need to. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and I, and I talked, actually talk about um, as a parent of three kids, there's not a single night where I don't say, kids, if you clean your teeth. Yeah. And, and and I don't expect to stop that. Um, I, I'm not sure, you know, I've got one 14 year old and I still say that to him, whether I'll be saying that when he's 18 or 19, I guess while he's under my roof, I will be asking that question. <laughs> um, is it annoying? Sure. But is it important that they clean their teeth instead of me paying thousands of dollars for a, you know, a dental bill? Um, 
Absolutely. So think about the the longer term, the opportunity costs. So important. Literally the last closing paragraph of my book is, is, is this line that says, when you know that they haven't got it, when you don't think they've got it, when you're not sure if they've got it, or when you think they might've got it, when you know they've got it, when you think you've said it enough, and when you're sick of saying it, say it again, because people are just starting to get it. Regardless of where you are on that, just when you think you've said it enough, people are just starting to get it. So just say it again, keep talking about it, keep being a part of it. Beautiful. And if you're not doing that, then maybe question what's your role and how are you, you know, what's the part that you're playing in that? What a fabulous yeah. conversation, Shane. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely wonderful. Such a privilege. Thanks so much for having me on. Excellent. And thanks everyone for listening. And uh, anyone that wants to connect with Shane or buy a copy of his books, I'll put all of the um, links in the comments. So, um, and I look forward to another dynamic leader conversation with you soon. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Dynamic Leader. There is no better time than now to work through your leadership and people strategy, to establish what the future might look like for your business and how you might empower your people to help you succeed. It is through building the capability of your people and reducing their dependency on you that will keep you moving forward at pace and will see you remaining relevant in the future. I have worked with over 100 businesses across almost as many industries and seen firsthand the challenges that come with employing, engaging and managing staff. If you're looking to improve how you lead, why not reach out for a conversation? In the meantime, thanks so much for joining me and stay awesome.